Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your host today, speaking with Dr. Louise Graves. Following a BA in Religious Studies and Psychology from York University, a Master of Divinity from the University of Toronto, Louise received her doctorate in Psychology and Theology at the Claremont School of Theology, which is part of the Claremont Colleges in California. She was ordained and worked as a United Church minister for over 30 years, working in both rural and urban pastoral charges before becoming assistant professor of spirituality and pastoral care at the University of Winnipeg. She now resides in Ottawa and is a registered psychotherapist with the College of Registered Psychotherapists of Ontario. Louise is also a Buddhist and a student of Pema Chodron. She uses the person-centered psychodynamic approach with a special interest in trauma, PTSD, depression, and life transitions in her own work that she does both in person and on Zoom. We at Food Junkies are especially interested in how a theological approach, in this case based on a Christian and Buddhist tradition, can inform us in our food addiction recovery work. So welcome, Louise. Hi, it's good to be here. Thank you. Okay, so Louise, we always start with the personal when we uh, do these podcasts. And in your case, because we're interested in your spiritual background, would you be willing to tell us right from the get-go what made you decide to uh, follow a spiritual calling? So I grew up in the Christian church. I was raised going to the United Church with my mom and dad, going to the Roman Catholic Church with my grandma, and my best friend down the road was Jewish, and I was often in synagogue with her. And so there never seemed to me to be hard lines between sectarianism and spiritualism, or frankly, between religions. I remember being asked in grade school what religion I was, and I said I was a Christian. And the teacher insisted that I delineate it as Protestant or Catholic. And I honestly didn't have any idea what she was talking about. So spirituality and religion and faith was the air that I I swam in as a kid. I went through college for recreational leadership and had focused on therapeutic recreation. And when I graduated, I worked in a psychogeriatric nursing home, group homes for ex-psych patients. Uh, I was worked at the Prison for Women in Kingston, and I worked in group homes for developmentally challenged adults. And in every one of these situations, I was tasked with helping people find wholeness. And I could work with all aspects of their being, except for spirituality. And spirituality, so with many, in all these situations, I was, I was tasked with helping folks find wholeness, couldn't deal with spirituality. And yet for so many people, it seemed that issues that I considered to be spiritual issues were pretty core to their finding health and wholeness. 
issues such as guilt or forgiveness or shame or meaning in life or what view one has of your place in reality. And these were all out of bounds for me within the role I was in. So this got me thinking more and more about how to, what position I might take or how I might begin to work with people on these issues of spirituality. At the same time, I became convinced that it was crazy that we separated off our old people to one place, our physically challenged to another place, our criminals to another place, those who were intellectually challenged to a different place, and told them all to be whole, and that we pretended that we could be well without them. And so this led me rather, probably not in your typical way, to experience a call to ministry. I saw the church as a place where we were called to be integrated community, where everybody of all walks, all all types were welcome, all ages, and where we could work with the fullness of our being. So that, that was my call to ministry. Then how did you get from there to, an, I, I want to say an entirely different picture, but maybe not, the Eastern perspective, the Buddhist perspective? Because you're talking about a very Christian background, that, that that's what you illustrated. So how did you get to the Eastern? Uh, well, within the Christian church, so, so there's always a lens that we bring to mm-hmm. our understanding of Scripture, to our understanding of theology. And for me, the key lens, the, the thing that, that held to be most true was the statement that God is love, and all who love abide in God, and God abides in them. And then from that lens, I look at all scripture, all theology, and say, okay, to what extent is this true or not? To what extent is this helpful or not? So this charge to love self, to love neighbor, to love God with all one's heart, mind, strength, and soul is is, uh, like one of the primary commandments the teachings, the instructions that were within the Christian church. What the church didn't give me was a how. Mm -hmm. So how do you love your neighbor when you don't like them? When this person irritates the heck out of me, what does it mean for me to be loving towards them or to my own self if I can't stand myself? And it seemed to me through through the years of working with myself and with other people that it was more than just an act of the will. Like, you can will yourself to take certain actions, but that doesn't change the spirit with which you're acting. And often it then comes across rather egocentric and often patronizing, which is really not my understanding of the heart of love. I was referred to a tape set by Pema Chodron called Awakening Compassion. And when I first heard heard her talks on on working directly with your own heart, lights went off for me everywhere in terms of how profoundly true the teachings were and how I'd already tasted some of the practices but didn't know that they'd actually were formal practices. So, for instance, I'd be sitting at the side of a bedside of someone in hospital who was suffering and I had no idea what on earth I could do to be helpful for them. And I'd be sitting there, and so I would just breathe in and offer the aspiration that I might alleviate some of their suffering as I breathe in. And then I'd breathe out and offer this aspiration that they receive comfort or peace. Well, that is kind of a thumbnail sketch of what the practice of Tong Lin is all about. 
And, and so it was a delight for me to discover that within the Tibetan community, they've been working on these practices for thousands of years and knew some of the obstacles and the antidotes. So what I found in Tibetan Buddhism, and in particular with the teachings of Annie Pema, was the how. How might you go about learning to open your heart? That's really interesting. I'm going to bring us back to that because the so you get the foundation from the Christian, and then you've got the uh, like of the what, and then the how um, in the Eastern. But I just wanted to ask you, like you studied, it was in the 70s, 80s, like somewhere around there. That's where that's when you started your journey, as it were. And would today being so different? It's now 2020s. I think the formal practice is really helpful for us to develop the ability to do it on the spot. That, that we, don't, we don't sit in meditation to become good at sitting in meditation. Huh? It, it's about how, how do we then keep our presence, our centeredness, our, and, and our openness when we're out walking on the street, when we're in the grocery store, when we're dealing with family members. So it's kind of like you don't, you don't practice scales on your piano to be good at playing scales. You do the exercises so that you can play on the spot and play as you would like to. Right. Um, so like the, the discipline that you learned with Pema Chodron and other Buddhist practices was how to use those tools that you could then use by the bedside without yeah. knowing that you were using them, as it were. Okay, let's just back up a little bit more. Just having a spiritual focus in life, do you think that that's uh, necessary? Because there's a lot of people, especially today, that like they don't like the God thing, they don't want to go there. And yet in the addiction world, we're always saying that addiction, or at least some of us are, is a spiritual malady, along with being a physical disease and a psych- psychological uh, malady as well. So what's your take on the necessity of spirituality in one's life, especially in the face of difficulty? But I think we can't avoid having a spirituality. I think we, we, we have one, whether we acknowledge it or not, a spirituality in terms of what gives our life focus, what gives our life meaning, What's our understanding of our place in this world? What is our highest value and highest good? To me, these are all spiritual questions. We're not talking about disembodied entities out there, but that these are, this, these are the heart of a spiritual question. And, and we will have one, whether we choose it consciously or not. So for some people, it may be the spirituality that we find in our society around us of capitalist consumerism that what is most important in my life is what I can buy, get, own, have. Ultimately, I think that ends up to be quite hollow. It can't sustain us ultimately, but it is a spirituality. The folks in our age today, and I think in many sense, rightly so, have said, oh, we've got a lot of trouble with the institutions. And look at the evil that has been perpetuated within institutions by the institution or by individuals. Mm-hmm. And as a response to that, People have said, I want nothing to do with religion. I call myself spiritual, but I'm not religious. And so we're just going to let all of that go. And in many ways, this saddens me because it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And the good of the institutions is things like, say, within Tibetan Buddhism, thousands of years of practitioners working with practices, with teachings to gain Um, more and more deeper or refined understandings of what's helpful, what's not helpful. We throw all that out. Well, it is possible within our own lifetime, each of us can discover ourselves 
the the truths and the practices on our own. We don't need to have it. But it's like we want to become a heart surgeon and we're just going to start tinkering away with scalpels. It's really helpful to have those who've walked the road before us to point out some of the, the, the paths and, and the dangers. And especially when we're working with heart and mind, our ego can be quite deceptive. It can, can work hard to, to trick ourselves. It's, it's the part of us that will have us go and grab the, 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 the fourth bowl of ice cream and tell us why it's a really good thing to do. Yeah, um, I mean, I was thinking as you're talking about this, this is so applicable to addiction. So anyway, keep going. Yeah. And so how, how, how do you work with that? How do you, first of all, begin to see that this part of me that's driving me to this is not all of me? And what is all of me? And how do I get some diff- distance from compulsion behavior? How do I begin to, to experience a sense of choice in, in how I live my life? We can discover that for ourselves, or we can discover it through looking into the, the knowledge that's held by others. Right. You know, that's it's, it's a, the analogy that I hear when you're saying that is, you know, people go on, on the internet and look up Dr. Google for all their conditions, and they don't want to listen to doctors anymore and the medical profession because, we, you know, there's no question that the medical profession makes all sorts of errors, just like the religious traditions. You know, we, you know, we we're making a buck off people's illness and meds and surgeries and all this kind of stuff. But then at the same time, you throw out the baby with the bathwater and, you know, all the years of study and experience are lost as well. So, yeah, I guess it's a similar thing. You're, you're a specialized practitioner of particular tools. So let's go now to the tools. I heard you saying earlier, or just a link to, you talked about Christianity as being, I guess, the message of love, but how, 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 how? And the Eastern was your way to find the how. So can you tell us some specific tools? that you found that worked for the how, tools that we might be able to use in the uh, addiction paradigm? Mm-hmm. Addiction. So the, the first practice that, that is taught to anybody if they enter into any sangha, and often the very last practice that the most advanced practitioner will end up going to is that of mindfulness meditation. Now, you were talking about the difference between the 70s and now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I did my doctorate. I graduated in 99 with my doctorate, and my dissertation was on the use of mindfulness meditation in pastoral counseling, and it was just a very new and emerging field at that time. Wow. And now John mindfulness Kabat-Zim. is everywhere. Yeah, that was starting with John Kabat-Zinn, right? Well, he was one of the first ones, yeah, Michael Washburn, Ken Wilber, there was a group of them that were not mainstream, uh-huh. but and, and they were the folks that I then used and, and relied upon in my work, in my dissertation, and then since then. Okay, good. So that's, that's mindfulness. And, and just to spell it out for me, how does that fit with the Eastern tradition? I mean, there's, there's sitting practices, but can you just spell it out? Like what, uh, they're not calling it mindfulness, right? They're, they're... Well, shamatha vipassana is mindfulness awareness meditation which is, uh, yeah, they, that's what they call it. And, and it's a, a very simple practice in terms of instruction, but quite challenging to do. So basically, you, you would sit like a king or a queen upon a throne. So you've got a strong back and a soft belly, and you let your hands just drop in your lap where they would. 
when you first sit, you, you do a scan from the inside and make sure that you're you're not over tight in your shoulders or clenching your jaw. You feel your butt upon the chair, your feet upon the earth. Because it's mindfulness and not mindlessness, our eyes are open because <laughs> we're not trying to shut things out. And so our eyes are open but downcast. So about four to six feet in front and you just sit. And as soon as you are aware of yourself thinking, the, the internal chatter that we have in our mind, oh, this is stupid to sit here, I'm not doing it right. What, when is this gonna be over? How long have I been sitting here? Oh my gosh, it feels like I've been here for an hour. What, it's only five seconds? That discursive mind that goes on, as soon as you become aware of it, you label it thinking, and you turn your attention to your out breath and go out with your breath. Can you apply that exactly what you're doing now? Throw in uh, a person struggling with cravings. How would they? How, what would they do? There they are. They're thinking about that fridge. There's still something in the fridge, and you know they're a night eater. And what do they do? What would they do? Yeah. And so within the mindfulness practice, you, you see it, you label it, you say, "Oh, thinking again, craving again." <laughs> Bring your attention back to your out breath and go back out with your breath really tough to do because you will find that at some point you're just going thinking out breath thinking out breath <laughs> thinking out breath <laughs> right um and then you become really uptight and they call that uh, in some sense they call that like hot boredom because it feels so claustrophobic and so tense hot boredom what an interesting concept yeah there, there's hot boredom and cold boredom and cold boredom it's, it's so boring people say same old same old i hate the same old same old that's the hot boredom yeah yeah wow and and you described it it's almost like a battle between like a, a duel between the ego and the i don't know what the other is the conscious mind or yeah you know, craving thinking whatever it is yeah and and part of this whole practice is also grounded in the view. So why do we go out with our breath? Because there's a sense of, of a belief and a trust that there's a reality that's greater than what's going on inside our discursive mind, and that it is basically good. So within the Christian context, I might say, well, we, we remember that we're surrounded by the Spirit of God, that there's nowhere we can go that that we're separated from the holy, that the holy is as close to us as our breath. And the image of the holy, like when people tell me they don't believe in God, I often say, what God don't you believe in? And most often, I probably don't believe in that God either, in terms of like being a separate, distant, unmoved mover who's already planned out the future for us and, and is looking for us to mess up every step of the way so that we're trapped in judgment. I couldn't worship such a being. I, I know there are people who do, but for me, that, that, that I just couldn't. So the view within, within a Christian context is one of, of, of being surrounded by this goodness that calls forth life and wants for each of us to have life and life in its fullness. Within a Buddhist context, they'll talk of bodhicitta, which is awakened heart, enlightened heart. And they say that's the essence, the nature of reality. And so images that are used in both contexts would be like, we trust that the sun is always shining, even though there may be clouds in front of it. So for that for poor person struggling in front of the fridge, how can yeah. they use those, those concepts now to help them? Well, for me, that, that's what gives you the courage to go back to your breath, to relax a bit. 
Got it, because you're you're going back to the divine, the holy. Yeah, yeah. That that it's always there, always there. And so yes, you come right back into this addictive mind and this just like a fly to fly paper where you get stuck on the thought. And for somebody who's with wrestling with addictions, the practice off the cushion is what will help in the moment when that mind kicks in and you're in front of the fridge. And so when you're sitting there and you've got an itch on your knee and it becomes this massive thing in your mind, you know, and you're sitting there and you're saying, thinking, you know, it's an itchy knee. I'm not going to touch it. Oh, I'm thinking again. And there it is. And it becomes so hard. And then you have a moment when you go out with your breath and you feel that gap. You experience that space. You say, ah, there it is. I've got a bit of, and then of course you're right back to this scratch again. (laughs) That space gets bigger. It gets bigger and it comes back more often and you gain more trust in its presence. Uh-huh. Uh, so it makes it so much easier to return to it. Right. Um, Great. Can you tell us about the cold boredom now? That was the hot boredom. What's the cold boredom? <laughs> That's when you fall asleep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when you're meditating and then you close you your just zonk out and fall asleep. It's like, oh, okay. Can't handle this. I'm just going <laughs> to, not going to entertain me. I'm not going to let me go off in this soap opera or that soap opera. I just fall asleep. And the antidote for that is to actually lean into it. Oh, Um, okay. Elaborate. So when you're feeling your your eyelids start to droop and you start doing that nodding off, you lean into it and touch and feel the flavor of that. And that tends to wake you back up. (laughs) Oh, interesting. And and could you do the same thing for emotions as well? Because we talk about that, leaning into emotions rather than trying to avoid them. Is that essentially a, a Buddhist practice then too? So there there are, and I would say, so I gave you just very briefly the, yes. the instruction for mindfulness. Yes. And then there are these other practices like Maitri or Tong Lin, and they're practices of working directly with your heart. When you do those practices, we tend to do them as like a, a sandwich. So if you've got 15 minutes, which is really short, to sit, you do five minutes of mindfulness, five minutes of Maitri, and five minutes of mindfulness. So that you begin and end with the mindfulness practice, and then in the middle, you do these practices of working directly with your heart. And those are the ones where you're, you, you're actually leaning into being willing to touch and feel the emotions that are rising in you. So you can do it in a, this is a, a very, truncated way to approach but again i'm just giving you a a short yeah yeah it's good direction so you sit for five minutes with mindfulness you ring a bell or you have your app chime (laughs) and on the chime that's when you would flash the bodhicitta that's when you would momentarily connect again with the sense of spaciousness then you get a sense of rhythm on your breath so your eyes are closed at this point because we're doing internal work and you, you um, try to get a sense of breathing in dark and heavy, breathing out clean and clear. Mm. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of practices around today where, where they, they would say, well, breathe in the, what is good and breathe out what is bad. You yes, know, I've heard that. Send away what's unwanted. Breathe in what's wanted. Well, this flips this on its head. It's breathing in what is unwanted and sending out what is desirable. And so when you breathe it in, 
you breathe it in through all the pores of your being. So it's not just a nose, mouth, and throat thing. Otherwise, we could get really tense in our throat. We breathe it in, and it goes through our heart and and to the universe. And then from the universe, through our heart, and out through all the pores of our being. So you picture yourself in front of yourself, in your mind's eye, and breathe in whatever arises in you when you see yourself there. So I'm, I'm actually thinking about the another, like the person standing in front of the fridge. So they've done the mindfulness, that battle, that hot boredom thing, because that's likely where they're going to start. And now they're yeah. into this piece here, this five minutes, where now they're breathing in maybe all the desire to eat and all the, all that kind of frenzied, yeah, that kind of stuff. And then on the out breath, yes. offer yourself something that might be helpful. So maybe it's a sense of spaciousness. Maybe it's a sense of satiation. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's a warm hug, you know, or a cup of tea. Something that is helpful in or laying on a beach. Maybe it's an image you give yourself so you don't feel quite so closed in and it's just me in the fridge, Mm -hmm. you know. So, okay, here I am on the beach. And then you breathe in and again. What you will find over a period of time and maybe even just in five minutes Like you start to breathe in that fight and that wrestle with yourself about what I want, what I don't want. And then maybe the next breath you breathe in a sadness or maybe it's a sense of of guilt or maybe it's a sense of loss or whatever that emotion is Mm -hmm. that is just hiding there right underneath this craving. Yeah. You know, I I have to say that without knowing that that's a practice that when in the old days when I ate food, that if I was able to get in touch with the emotion, which is probably what gradually would happen, there would be tears behind it. Yeah. It's like a wailing kind of tears. So that would, that's what would happen then. But then I would breathe in that pain and then release, I don't know what I'm looking for, love or kindness or something. And that's why we work with the breath because first of all, it's always there. You don't have to, as long as we're alive, we're breathing. So it's it's not something we have to run off and find. And the other thing is that you can't just only breathe in or you can't just only breathe out. So there, there's there's an alternation between the two, which is really quite helpful. There's always another step so that we don't stay focused just on ourselves. We always will put in, if we start with ourselves and do that, the last minute of, if we've got five minutes, so we do four minutes with ourselves, then a minute with recognizing that all around the world, right at this point in time, there are thousands of other people who are experiencing the exact same thing that we are. Uh-huh. And so we breathe in on their behalf and send out on their behalf. That's like a loving kindness meditation, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So, and, 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 and it, breaks us away from our own ego and realize that what when we're doing this we're not doing it just for ourselves right i mean also the slogan you're no longer alone the comfort of that yeah and in a very real way as we do this we do actually learn about what other people go through as well Uh and what might be helpful great so that that's thank you for illustrating that tool any other tools that you want to give us that you use or that you learned. And one of them might be the loving kindness. That's one that I really liked when I um, dabbled in this stuff. Other tools. Well, I really, I mean, Sangha is important. Community is important. 
of being with other people is really important. And, and often our shame keeps us from connecting with others. It's also what can make us highly judgmental of others. I don't want to be with them because they're just a bunch of. Uh-huh. Uh, but when those words come out of our mouth, it's also like, oh, do I think that about my own self? What, what would uh, you do with, do with shame? Because that is a common one that people come in with. Shame is soul destroying. Shame, shame is is such a harsh emotion. It really is one that says, "Oh well, you, you, you." There's something inherently wrong about you, bad about you, unacceptable about you. And the approach is one of learning to love yourself, to realize that you are lovable, that you're created good, that the essence of who you were when you came mewling and crying into this world as an infant you came with basic goodness that that you've got an aspiration inside of yourself to to be a a spark of light in this world in your way Uh in your way so would that would that uh loving kindness meditation be helpful for shame oh absolutely yes yeah so what one of the maitri practice these are all loving kindness meditations okay so that they're all working with with your heart and working at awakening compassion for yourself and for other people. So within like a Maitri practice, you may start with a sense of, I, I just, I, I feel such contempt towards myself, you know, so I, I can't even go there. So a Maitri practice would, would begin by everybody's got someone or something that they love that awakens in them a sense of, of good heart. And so you'd begin with calling to mind that person or thing. Maybe it's your cat. My dog. Your dog. Your dog. Yeah. <laughs> that that unquestionably, when you see them, your heart just opens and you just uh-huh. feel like the world's a better place. And here I am. And so again, working with your breath, you breathe in when you see this 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 person or this being. It might be someone from your past. It might be a fictional figure. So or an animal or a place, you, you, you breathe in that sense of unquestioned openness and send out to that being something that is good for them, helpful for them. And then you would move to a good friend. Then you would move to a neutral. And most of the people in our lives, like we pass hundreds on the street every day, where we don't feel strongly one way or another towards them. Mm-hmm. Then you'd go to a challenging person, and then you'd go to an enemy or the most difficult. Which could be you if you're hating. Which yourself. could be you. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so you start with the one where automatically you don't have to work at opening your heart with it. Some people can't get for a long while anywhere past the neutrals. And with the neutrals, it's, it can feel rather mechanical. Does that change? With exercise, yeah, with practice, it does. So then, then, then there are people say, "Oh well, I've got no, you know, no. There's nobody. I've got no enemies. I've had people. Say, there's no enemies. Nobody that really ticks me off." So one of the walking meditation exercises is to just walk down the street, aware of your. Instead of coming back to your breath, you come back to the sensation of your feet on the ground. Uh huh. And as you're walking down the street or in a shopping mall or a store, just notice your own inner sense of attraction or aversion. 
to each and every person that walks by. And quite amazingly, we will have a sense of, ooh, nice person, ooh, stay away from them as you walk by. And, and you, that tends to, again, it's a mindfulness practice and it makes helps you become more aware of where you're walking from within your own self. Uh-huh. And in turn, as you're doing that with the world, you also, the, the two go sort of hand in glove. You become more aware of how you walk with your own self. Right, because how you walk in the world is also how you walk within yourself. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, Food Junkies listeners. We're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. Hey, Food Junkie listeners. Have you read the book, Food Junkies Recovery from Food Addiction yet? It all starts there. This is the book with the basic theory and clinical knowledge of food addiction. Read this book first to get the basics. Our Food Junkies podcast jumps off from the book and is the ongoing breathing version, ever growing and ever expanding. Our podcast introduces you to all the issues of food addiction and the who's who of food addiction today. And if we at the Food Junkies podcast have inspired you to action, either to quit sugar or some other triggering foods or behavior, and you need some extra support, then please join the free Facebook group, I'm Sweet Enough Sugar Free for Life. There you will find a community of people who come from all parts of the spectrum, from the new and just starting out, to the long timers who call themselves food addicts in recovery, to counselors ready to give back and help you. The Facebook group even offers free support Zoom groups. Basically, it's a great online living resource of food addiction to help you stay sugar-free for life. So please join us. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. What do you do for people that are really resistant to a spiritual, they're just really resistant to that? Do you work with that at all? Or Because that's one of the promises of mindfulness is it, like the, the, the version, the secular version is you don't have to believe in God or a higher power. It's just mindfulness. But you're saying that is still spirituality. So yeah. how do you work with somebody who's saying, I don't want that spiritual thing? Well, if they're they're looking at spiritual as being sort of some disembodied entity or some like my own self, like a spirit that pre-existed before my human birth and that will continue to exist after my human birth, mm. we, we don't have to go there. We don't have to go there. But we all have a mind. We all have awareness. We all have emotions. We all have sensations. That's part of what comes with this life as embodied human beings right um, and it's all in the present moment everything that all you- in the present yeah well yeah. we we bring the past up along with us uh-huh. and and spend an awful lot of time speculating about the future but it is all here and it's nothing to do with non-physically experienced entities i, I think that a lot of folks when they they, they say well you know I, I again i don't want spirituality is that there there's a particular idea they have about what spirituality is that they don't want to have anything to do with 
But if you talked about, well, then let's let's not talk about spirituality. I mean, maybe this is disingenuous on my part, uh, but let's talk about what's meaningful. I'm from my perspective, I'm still talking about spirituality. Yes, right. I get it. Is your approach compatible with the 12 step model, the higher power concept? Yeah. What's your take on that? I mean, it comes from a Christian tradition, and a lot of people have used the um, Eastern, they've made merges or meldings of, of the Eastern and the 12-step model, but what's your perspective? When I look at the historic writings within the 12-step programs, the theology is rather archaic and, and at times can be quite harsh. It, it, they're, they're ten, I am struck by a lot of judgment that I, I, I read in it. And God is a distant, well, in the traditional, the big man in the sky. Hmm. Um, that's where it came from, yes. That's where it came from, yeah. yeah. And for a lot of people, that that's just a place they can't go to. Mm-hmm. For other people, they find great comfort in that. I think the basic truth, you know, like the, the, this understanding, I came to a realization that I was powerless is profound, that that really is kind of a, a cornerstone in beginning the step to find some health, is saying, here's something that I'm not coping well with at all, and I've used all my own resources to try to work it out my way, mm-hmm. generally from an egocentric place, and I've not been able to do it. And so I give my power over to. Now, for Folks that I've worked with who are survivors of abuse, the giving my power over to anybody is a place that's untenable for them. It's like, I know what that's like, and I'm not going to give my power over to any other being. And and really what the issue is for me is to find my power. And so, well, then let's look at the God within you and how do you center yourself in that goodness within you that's beyond this discursive mind that you have no control over to this innate being that that can rest beyond your addictive mind right but now it's within you yeah but now it's within you yeah and in that sense uh, when we talk higher power in the 12-step program we could be talking about that sense of i i like to say it's a benign goodness it's uh yes yeah yes you could call it that. And I mean, we can use all kinds. And, and okay, my understanding, my own personal understanding, God is one. There, there, there is one spirit. There's one one within whom we all exist and move and have our being. That, 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 that it, the, we use the word God, and that in itself tends to separate, becomes dualistic. But it's like the, it's like the nature of that we're a part of. Which is ultimately non-dual. It's God's not far away and I'm here. And that's also part of the Tibetan perspective. Yes. And I think it's also within the Christian, you know, within the Gospel of John, I am in you and you are in me and God is in us. Uh, But using words is inherently dualistic. You know, as soon as I use a word, I'm separating this from that. And I think that the, the the nature of reality, I mean, all human beings at all times have had experiences of a profound goodness in creation and have used different images and ideas and words to speak and point to that. 
Some of them have emphasized more of one flavor than another. I also tend to think that, so Ken Wilber is a, a transpersonal psychologist. Integral spirituality is what he works with. There's a, there is controversy about his work, but I do think that there are, he talks about developmental levels. Okay. Uh, and when I say there's controversy, because people, there, there, there's a whole school that says, no, we can't have levels. That's talking about hierarchy and, mm-hmm. and hierarchy is inherently evil. From my experience, there are, it, it's also just real that we develop through certain steps and certain stages. Okay. And we need to have the previous ones solid enough before we can reach beyond them. Okay. Yeah. Um, to the next one. And it happens on a physical level. Like our embryos have to be so far developed before, like cells have to be so far developed before you can have organs, before you can have a body, before you can have. And it also, uh, psychologically, we have developmental levels and stages. And he has suggested that spirituality can also line up in levels and stages, Mm. which is rather insulting to people if they, the spirituality they follow tends to be on a, within the model, a less developed or mature spirituality. When you look around the world, you can, people can readily see that fundamentalists of any religion have an awful lot in common with each other. Mm -hmm. Right. And those that are mystics of any religion have an awful lot in common with each other. And I think that that, that, that points to how, and for, for a fundamentalist, they could they they cannot see that there would be a higher spirituality than what they're living in. Mm-hmm. Rather, like a child who's focused in rural mind, which is around seven and eight year old. You see seven eight year olds playing together, and they're playing house, and they'll, they'll get into fighting about how mummy or daddy has to behave because that's how it is. Mm-hmm. We, we've got these rules. This is how we do it in moral development. If you ask a, a child of a certain age, is it if they've been taught that it's wrong to steal, and you say, well, if your child is hungry, is it okay to steal? They just say no, because it's black and white. Uh-huh. Yeah. But when you get to be 13 and you ask them, well, if your child is, is starving, is it okay for the mother to steal food from the grocery store? They might say, well, that depends, and maybe it is. Uh-huh. And then you begin to, to say, well, you know, Maybe the hard and fast black and whites aren't so hard and fast, and there's other ways of doing. Could you make the argument then that the person who's stuck in addict mind, because I always want to bring it back to our listeners, that they might be stuck in a spiritual practice where it's it God, food is their God, basically, like when yep. you're stuck in it, that they're stuck in a lower level in a sense, and that this invites them to essentially open up their heart to a higher level. Yes, you, you could do that. And then most people tend to be insulted when you yeah. tell them it's a, what they hold dear to their hearts is lower level. Uh-huh. But I think that that to, to, to find ways to help them see that there, there is a, another path beyond where the rock they're sitting on. Yeah, yeah. You know, that there's another place you can move to where the whole world is going to look a little different than what it does right now. And you're not going to be so trapped in this is the thing that's going to keep me well and whole because it actually is the thing that's killing you. Exactly. And the trap is what people describe all the time. They feel trapped. They feel imprisoned by their addiction. And 
what we're offering, or what, what you're offering, or the spiritual practices offering is an opening of that trap to yeah. another place, to the place outside that trap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it, I mean, it, I don't want to belittle the amount of courage it takes to to be willing to just say, "Ooh, maybe there is," and maybe I'll try this just once. Okay. The reassurance is that you can always back off. Okay, now I, I wanted I want to switch to something slightly different, but related to what you said. So if if we're using those hierarchies, and so the top of that hierarchy, I think that would be like the bodhis bodhisattva. Is that how you say it? Yeah, or, or even the guru above that, right? The 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 teacher. The, now, what yeah. happens? Why do we have so many gurus who go? They go bad. Like things fall apart. Like we had Bhagwan with the Sri Rajneesh community who went bad. We have, well, I'm hoping you'll tell us a little bit about the Pema Chodron community there. Like why are, why are these enlightened beings not so enlightened at the end? Like what's happening there? Because they're also human. <laughs> okay. I mean, bottom line is that they're also human, but they're also in communities where they're often treated like gods, and so it becomes so easy to forget. Uh. And to be confused, like human beings are, we're all, we've all got feet of clay at some point or another. It didn't take me long being in ministry in the church to realize firsthand how people very much want a leader to be better than they are and will project on us images of us that is far beyond where we actually walk. And it's so tempting to believe that that's actually us. So in the church, people do fall in love with you. And I don't mean that to be like, oh, look at me, I'm so special. You know, I go out there and I preach and then people love me. But if you speak in a way and they only see this image of you, where where you seem to be holy and good and kind, they're really wanting to fall in love with themselves, with their own best selves. But to do so, it gets put on you. And a skillful person, God willing, will help them reclaim it for themselves and fall in love with themselves. But I think a lot of spiritual leaders do forget that, no, they're not all that. That, they yes, they have access to some profound truths and they do have teachings, but they, they, they also are human and frail and, and just as vulnerable as anybody else to be driven off track by their ego. Well, you know, so that's interesting because that's like the thing that comes to mind here is that person has all the knowledge and the tools. They have them because they're teaching them, but that is not enough. They probably mm. have to continue to do the how-to. They have to continue to do the practice. Yeah. And that would be the and, same with addiction. Like a person, they know, they know what they should eat. They know what they shouldn't. They know, but, but, but they have to do it. You still have to walk the walk. You still yeah. have to, to do the work. Absolutely. And it's so important to have community. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some of these communities and some of the ones where the people go so far off is that the community doesn't hold their feet to the fire when they start going off. Right. Because it's not it's not to be surprising that someone would begin to think that they really are God's gift to creation uh-huh. uh, in a way that's more so than anybody else's, because we all are. Yeah. So, so can I ask you the example? So Pema Chodron, she, was, she is still teaching, right? She's on the west, east coast of Canada in a community. 
Well, she's actually she actually just retired last fall. Okay. She still is a very uh, a precious teacher to so many of us. Uh-huh. But in terms of her public teaching, she she just turned 80. She she's just retired. But yeah, she okay, so you were going to go with the the whole Shambhala thing. Yeah, 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 like her teacher. And I don't know whatever you're willing to talk about cuz I I find it a, a super interesting phenomena. I mean, in a way, the same thing happened with Bill W. in uh, the AA thing. He ended up dabbling a womanizer. He ended up dabbling in LSD. And I mean, he wasn't an exemplar example either and probably didn't do the do things. But anyway. And yet had access to profound truths and was sharing them. Absolutely. Right. It's not enough, folks. (laughs) But anyway. I just, just so Chogyam Trumpa, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche was one of the first Tibetan teachers to bring the dharma from tibet to the west he fled tibet at the time of when china invaded he ended up in great britain and then eventually went to the united states and if you read his writing you can tell that he was writing like in the well 60s and 70s and so his jargon is from that time and what he was trying to do well what he did do was present the mind training from Tibetan Buddhism in a way that would be accessible within secular society. Uh Um, Now, he was also always continued to be, he was the head of a Kagyu Nyingma lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. He was recognized within Tibetan Buddhism as being a Buddhist teacher. And he also continued to propagate Buddhist teachings. Well, he he developed this Shambhala, which was secular mind training, but then the Shambhala community throughout North America, well, and now around the world, where these teachings could be propagated and shared and the practices introduced. And Chogyam Trungpa, if you read his books, he's brilliant. He's spot on. And if you listen to his talks, you, you, it's I don't know that I've met a person who hasn't who's listened to him and not said, "Wow, you know that guy is got, there's giftedness there and mm-hmm. amazing truths, profound truths in what he's sharing, sharing." And yet he was also an alcoholic, and he died of uh, alcoholism. He was using cocaine right to the day he died. He, I've seen him give talks where he was clearly drunk, and yet his words were still incredibly brilliant. And so you're saying, well, how do you reconcile the two? It's like, wow, the community begged him to please stop drinking, stop using, because they wanted him to live, Mm. and he didn't. It's been quite painful for a lot of folk within Shambhala. You're still holding on to uh, the teachings as valuable, as useful. Well, truth is truth, eh? Yeah. Even if the one who speaks it is is misguided. You know, you said at the very beginning of our talk was following these disciplines, you can learn without having to discover for yourself. You can learn the tools, but uh, the positives and also the pitfalls. And in a sense, this experience, you could also learn the pitfalls. And one of them is, is that, I guess, if you're given too much and not hold accountable, and not doing the do things, you can fall into addiction just just like anybody else. Just like anybody else. Huh. And what I saw with with Chogyam Trungpa, what from the people who knew him then, uh-huh. and what I've seen with the Sakyong is that the Sangha didn't hold them to account. Uh-huh. 
And so they are just like every other human being. Yes. Let's go to you now, Louise, just as a sort of in closing. What is it that you do in your work now? Because you're a psychotherapist now, and presumably you're using both these traditions in, in the way that you've been describing. So tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, I work primarily with individuals, though I, I have done and will be doing again soon, some small groups working with women survivors of sexual abuse. So meditation is one of the tools that I do introduce to a lot of folks. It helps you lose your mind and come to your senses. Folks who are wrestling with anxiety tend to be moving way to the future or driven by the past. And so this helps you come right back to the here and now. Yeah. Um, I was really struck by the term when you said mindful instead of mindless. <laughs> yes. Well, there's there's a lot of meditation practices and there's place for them too, which are really beneficial that introduce that, that try to lead people into a trance state. So we drift off and we we lose awareness of our surroundings entirely. Maybe we're just some of the guided imagery where we're sitting on a, a beach and listening to the waves and, and, and you can have a 15 minute vacation and come back feeling incredibly well rested, but have no awareness at all of what's gone on in the room around you while you were there. So there's a place for that. That's a yes. different sort of meditation. Yes. Uh, yes. Actually, what you've described there, I think of sometimes that's when people are in a food binge, that's essentially what they've done. They've gone off somewhere in that binge in a kind of mindless place. But then, of course, when they come back, they're not happy about where they were. About where they were. Yeah. It, it allowed them to escape wherever they were in that moment. So you would be offering an alternative in, in this approach. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. And and the sense that we, you know, we keep coming back and we keep coming back. I mean, the, the, this notion that we need to get things right the first time and do it perfect, I think it's just setting ourselves up for failure. I don't know any human being who learned to walk the first time they put a foot on the ground. You know, we, we take a step and, and we land on our backside and we get onto our knees and scoot forward a little bit and then we land on our backside and then we, we gain more confidence and more sense of balance, learn about what it feels like to be off balance. Ever and always, I try to find a way to align with and help them align with the part of themselves that wants to choose what's best for them. Because that's that's what's brought them to me. Mm -hmm. they're, they're saying, hey, I, I can already see that this doesn't have to be, or I, I have a hunch, I have a sense that there's another way for me. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can't even see it yet, but I think there might be and there must be, and I sure want it. So that's the part I want to be in alliance with. I want to side right up with that part of them. I want to help them see and hear their own stinking thinking mm -hmm. and the ways that they will knock their own feet from out from underneath themselves. Often it's things like shame or pain that seem unbearable and so drive the person to whatever the addiction may be. And so to help them touch on while with me and then away, those things that just seem too painful to touch on to learn that we can touch it and move back and we're still okay. And we can touch in again and move back. We don't have to dive in the deep end and stick our toe in the water uh -huh. and gain a sense of stability and freedom and to make friends with that part of ourselves that has been cut off. Okay. So we do that by talking about what's going on right here, right now. 
and from that can be well right here right now i feel this and that may take us back to yesterday last week last month and then come back to today with a sense of god willing reintegrating the parts of ourselves that we've cut off so that we can stand more solidly right and then again with mindfulness and compassion as well yeah yeah Yeah. and i guess the thing that i was struck by what you said earlier too is whatever it is that you do in your session or in the meditation it then gets carried out into the world without you even realizing it like you you build in that sense of compassion and mindfulness like a muscle i guess that's been exercised i really do believe that that's been my own personal experience and i've witnessed it with others that that every attempt is a step forward mm-hmm. so we we count those we don't have to count the falling on your backsides right i'm delighting in the in the practice that i've got right now in terms of my practice in psychotherapy it's so inspiring and so in some ways incredibly selfish because i i see so many people who would just show me day after day after day that good heart is at the core of all of us and that 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 is the strongest thing well that's a great way to end and i'm going to end with this our signature question and i'll i'll ask it to you this way if you could tell a younger version of yourself something that you've learned about i guess the good heart what would it be the journey's worth it the journey is worth it don't 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 despair okay all right thank you Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.